Welcome to Live to Grind. My name is Brennan T. Adams, serial entrepreneur, inventor, TV creator, and speaker, passionate about helping others create something great and become unforgettable. Join me each week to discuss practical ways to help you increase your income and impact as an influencer in your industry. My goal is to help you take your business and lifestyle to the next level. Now let's get started. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brendan C. Adams, and on today's show, we have G. Levitt of Toolbox OS, which is an exciting company. Actually, it's a company I recently invested in and I advise. And in today's episode, G. is going to share with us what is happening with the future of technology. He's going to talk about how his software that he's created invested over $8 million of his own money in for building out this technology, how he he can utilize this technology to help grow other businesses. We talk about how, well, people are going to be able to connect their minds to the cloud. We talk about Elon Musk stuff, and I ask him, how do you feel about the future of technology and how we can connect literally technology to our brains and what that will do, the, the positives and negatives of that. And, and we really talk about what's going to happen the next 10, 20 years in business. If you do not have technology implemented in your business or certain softwares or processes, you better because after you listen to this episode, you're probably going to want to give G a call. So let's jump right into it with G of Toolbox. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Brennan T. Adams Show. I'm Brennan T. Adams, and today we have G. Levitt of Toolbox OS, who is an entrepreneur. He's a shark. I call him the tech for equity guy who knows how to get equity in companies and help them grow their EBITDA by 1% to 400% and substantially grow their business and evaluation. But we're going to start off by jumping into the early years of G's business career. G, how you doing, brother? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you on the show. I want to hear your teenage years. Tell me about the teenage entrepreneur. What were you doing in your teenage years as an entrepreneur? Oh, man. Well, I was actually uh, doing mostly racing mountain bikes, uh, trying to figure out how to become a professional golfer and uh, doing (laughs) a bunch of sports. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up playing in college and uh, as a junior, which is, you know, golfers under 18, I was I was highly ranked. I played in the U.S. Open for people under 18. I played in junior world. I I placed fairly well in worldwide events uh, for golfers. So that was kind of my my early years. And Honestly, never grew up knowing what I wanted to do. You thought uh, you wanted to be a professional golfer? Well, I, I knew when I was about 18 that I didn't think I wanted to go pro. Uh, I thought that I had probably a career in something else. But when I entered college, uh, zero clue what to major in, zero, zero clue what to focus on. In fact, I found out what to major in by interviewing the teachers <laughs> at, the, at the university that I decided to go to. And the, the, the teacher that I liked the most was the marketing guy. And so I majored in marketing. So you interviewed the professor and, and basically based off his responses, determined that you wanted to get into marketing. Yeah, I was like, this this field seems really interesting. And he was like, well, we don't have a great marketing department, but I recommend, you know, you do make maybe like a combo between communication and marketing. Yeah. And I was like, great. And I had started a business about a year after entering. So by the time I was a junior, I already had a million dollar business. I had no need to graduate college, um, but I but I did anyway. 
So what what was that business you started? It was a marketing agency. Okay. So talk about how you went from literally just your concept, your idea to your first hundred grand. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's important to note that like I saw where the internet was going and was super addicted to like websites back yeah. in the day. And, and I was one of the first users of Google AdWords. And so I got hired to pioneer the internet department concept inside of Ford dealerships. Yep. So this group of Ford dealerships hired me to come in and try and figure out how to sell cars online. What year was this? Uh, this was 03. Okay, 03. Uh, so when I figured that out and we ultimately built uh, what's now known as the, the internet department at car dealerships. And every car dealership has an internet department these days, every new car dealership. But in 03, no one had them. Uh, so we, we pioneered that. And so by the time I left to go become an entrepreneur, which was January 07, um, I already had a lot of experience kind of doing it because I did it for Ford. Um, and I, I replicated a lot of that, that knowledge and that success uh, as an entrepreneur. And because I hit kind of the macroeconomics, right? I mean, right out of the gate, we had clients. I didn't, I didn't even know how to necessarily go get clients. Um, but it was, it was rather easy to get customers because there was a flood of people heading to the internet in that 08 recession. So you gained your experience working with Ford, correct? Mm -hmm. yep. And then as soon as you left, you took what you learned there and just put it right into your own business. Yeah, I did the exact same thing. I, I helped them go online, build the site, do the first SEO strategy, figure out search engine marketing. And uh, that's ultimately what I was just doing for clients. And uh, it went pretty quick. I mean, within the first year and a half to two years, uh, I had it to over a million in top line revenue. And so website, SEO, really just driving more traffic to their site and generating more leads, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, most of our clients were hiring us because they wanted more leads. Uh, I would say the other percentage of them were hiring us just because they wanted to get in front of that internet movement. What what was, so doing that company, what were the first couple of obstacles you experienced? Because it sounded easy, but like, what were the things you had, you experienced in the first million that were tough? You know, for me, it was all about team and hiring. Uh, yeah. It was, it was struggle to get engineers um, because we were doing mostly web development so uh, we were getting, you know, software-ish type of requests for projects and, and our, our web dev division was, was pretty intense. We were pioneering a lot of e-commerce stuff back in the day. I probably built more e-commerce shopping carts, did more PCI compliance in 07, 08 when it wasn't super popular and, and well-known than anybody. We, we, I mean, we had a digital agency before that phrase ever existed, you know? What did you, when you were doing that, and this is 08, like this is like the early time, I believe, in everything online. Did you see online going to where it is today? Did you think it was going to become the massive thing that it is today for opportunity? No, definitely not. I mean, I saw it in bits and pieces, I would say. You know, when we joined <clears throat> that movement, we knew that everyone was going to go online. And then we quickly realized everyone was going to go in e-commerce. And so we started building carts. And then in 09, at the end of 09, I discovered SaaS because I saw Salesforce.com and their little kind of, it, it was a, like a circle with a line through it that said software, like saying no software, right? And their concept was like no software to download because at the time we really didn't have SaaS. You know, yeah. software as a service wasn't a concept um, in those early 2000s. So when, when they pioneered that idea and got it out there, that's when I knew that SaaS would eat the world. And that's we ended up actually building our first SaaS product at the end of 09 when I saw what they were doing. 
So I think the really the only key to my success early on uh, was just the fact that I saw where the macroeconomic climate was heading, where consumer behavior was going, and I was just basically following what I thought the trend was going to be. So when you build the software in 09, what what did the software do? Well, it wasn't built for anyone else. It was just built for us. So in the software world, we call that multi-tenant. It wasn't multi-tenant. It was single tenant. It was just, we needed to automate our business. We need to get the friction out of our business. And our business was very project management heavy. Lots of moving parts. Did this person pay their invoice? Is their retainer up? Have you completed the hours? How did you pass off the project to Harry? Did Harry pass it back to Sally? It was a really tough project management business uh, running an agency. So I, I studied theory of constraints, which is literally the most boring thing you could possibly do. Um, I basically studied how do car manufacturers and how do systems thinkers and how do Six Sigma people think about um, efficiency and throughput? Uh, because I had tons of challenges with throughput in my business. We had 11% net margins uh, on 1.2 million in revenue. Oh, wow. It was, it was very too good. low. It was too yeah. low for my taste. So we ended up inventing what I call an operating system. It was just a, a, a software that did what we needed ever to do, right? It was like 19 things that we hated about our business that we were able to get rid of or automate or systematize. And the friction flew out of the business and we 5X net profit. So give me a couple examples of the things that you took out that you didn't have to do anymore. Oh, that sure. The yeah, even did. how we took leads, like how we connected the site to the CRM and then automatically replied to, you know, early or not early, but but leads that came in on the front end of the business, right? So there's a lot of research out there that if you don't respond to lead within five minutes, the likelihood of that lead closing goes down. So we 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 pioneered how to connect your site to a CRM and then get that lead in the business, assign it to the right person and get an automatic reply out. And then we ended up building an entire proposal creation tool. So our sales team was just able to like go in, click this button, this button, this button, boom, it would spit out a proposal. They wouldn't have to email anything, download anything. There's no PDFs. And the system would send the proposal right to the client. The client would click the link, pull it up, e-sign it. It would send it back. It would auto assign the hours to the right people. Invoicing was automatically done out of the portal. Again, it was only built for us, but it was amazing, right? Wow. And so all the friction around like what your people spend time on, I think of it as the pie chart of the person. What's the pie chart of the actual person in your organization? What do they spend time doing? And when we, you know, interviewed our people and analyzed our people, there was a lot, like our, our top sales guy was spending five hours to write a proposal. Wow. That was his average. Five hours for Some one proposals proposal. were an hour. Some proposals were 10 hours, right? But if you, if you chalk it up to like, just, oh, well, that's how long proposals take. Uh, what I did is I said, no, there's patterns to proposals. So I built all the patterns into a proposal writing system. And so all they would do is just click buttons of the things they knew the client needed and it would auto inject all the things that they needed. And, and then they would complain about, well, I got to send the proposal out and then I got to wait for it to come back. And then I got to get it signed. And you wouldn't believe how difficult e-signatures were in 2009, yeah. you know, very difficult. Yeah. So we pioneered one of the first e-signature platforms in, in our CRM. So, you know, by the time this worked so well and we 5X net profit, that that really catalyzed our ability to say, well, we could become a software company. Mm -hmm. You do that for other people. Yeah. And so that that's when Toolbox OS was created. 
Yeah, that's when we decided to be energetically a software company. So I took our, our best guys, our best engineers, and I actually rented the office space next door and I stuffed them in there. No, no sign on the door, just siphoned them off and started giving them projects. Because as a 25 year old, I had almost $700,000 a year that would have hit me as net profit oh, wow. in an S corp. So I, I, I had to do something with that. So I just reinvested it. You know, I just, I just hired more engineers, put the software engineer guys over here, kept the web dev guys over here, and I just kept it going. And I milked that for nine and a half years at around 700,000 net. So you, you every year basically took your profits and invested in the software. Correct. Which, which eliminated my need to find early investors to build a really nice platform. Wow. That's, you really put the skin in the game. <laughs> well, you know, I just made one correct decision, which was researching how to actually get higher throughput, you know, to get my EBITDA or net profit up. I had to realize that like, like this friction thing was real. And it took a lot of analysis, uh, I got to tell you, for a couple of years to figure out why my business wasn't more profitable. But as soon as I figured it out, it was like, oh, okay, well, then I think I know what we can do. I just got to go execute now. We'll, we'll get into some of the companies that you first put through the ringer in terms of your platform, but why for entrepreneurs out there, why do most of them not have a, a high profitability percentage? Like what are the mistakes that they make that they don't have a great EBITDA? Yeah, it's a really good question. I would say every entrepreneur is cut from a different cloth, right? So I, I wouldn't say my advice applies to all, but um, the one thing the most scientific thing I know to do around EBIT is to do pie charts on people's time. And I've found that there's really no substitute for it. Nobody does it. Even the people that have good EBITDA-driven businesses, uh, there's still more net profit to be had. Because what happens is if you stare at the pie chart of a person that works in your organization, you inevitably see things that you don't want to pay for. And let me contextualize that. If you pay John, your VP of operations, $200,000 a year, let's say, and you stared at his pie chart and noticed that 20% of his time was spent on something you don't think is appropriate, then you've now contextualized 20% of $200,000 as completely wasted. Yeah. Right? So the moment you see that, it changes the way you think about your business and your people and your payroll. And so I call it a people statement. We're familiar with income statements, um, but I call it a people statement, which is a statement on how your people spend their time. And as soon as you can see that unbelievably clearly, you will see things that you don't agree with. You will see things you don't want to be paying for. And ultimately you're paying for them in one way or another, right? You're paying for them. So you're you're basically finding ways to better utilize people's times and maybe getting rid of, rid of some of the fat, some of the maybe employees that are needed and they can be better utilized through your software. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it's actually for me, it's more about like saying, well, if this person's going to work here, I want them using 100 percent of the time on things that I think are productive. And so what the pie charts do is they inform you what you should be building in terms of systems. Mm -hmm. And when I say systems, you might think, oh, well, just a process or something like that. It could be a project. 
I I ultimately contextualize systems as software because if you can turn them into software, you get two benefits instead of one, right? So if you build a system or a process for something, you'll get one benefit, which is increase in net profit. The friction in your business will go down. If you turn that system into a software, you get another benefit because every business that has proprietary software gets a multiple increase. Mm -hmm. they're, they're valued higher, right? So a service business with no software might be worth five times EBITDA. A service business with software could be worth 18 times EBITDA. So you really have to think about the incremental benefit that you'd get by not only systematizing something because it's in the pie chart and you hate it yeah. and you want to get rid of it in your business, but then also turning that into a product or proprietary software or process, there's two benefits there. And what most people forget is that those are exponential, right? So if you 3x EBITDA and 3x your multiple, you 9x your business value, your enterprise value. Yeah. So if your business is worth $5 million today and you 3x EBITDA, now it's worth $15 million. If you're on a $15 million business, if you 3x the multiple, now it's worth $45 million. So it's not three times, it's nine times, right? It's not six times, it's nine times. The math plays with your head a little bit, but the incremental benefit of working on two of these levers, the multiple and the EBITDA, is exponential. They multiply each other. So your Toolbox OS is going into these companies and helping them grow their EBITDA and exponentially growing the valuation of their company. Before we go into some of the ones you're doing today, what about your first couple that you worked with? Because obviously the first time going through the system, you probably learned a lot. What were the first couple companies where Toolbox OS came in and implemented your software in their system? What kind of companies were they? Yeah, we designed the system actually for multi-level slash multi-location organizations. So our concept initially was, we think SaaS is cool, right? Software as a service is gonna eat the world and it's gonna be amazing. And it has high multiples and we're gonna build an amazing SaaS business. But we felt the only thing that would differentiate us was an ability to service multi-location or multi-level businesses. And when I say multi-level, I don't necessarily mean an MLM. Insurance is the largest multi-level industry in the world. Mm -hmm. um, Mortgage is also one of those. So what we conceptualized was, could we build a, a software that helped people manage tons of different organizations under one platform? And that's how we conceptualized uh, what we built. And I think we did a decent job. So when we finally finished it, our concept was, hey, we'll go try this in some franchises. And we, we took down uh, several clients that were franchises, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, boutique stores and, you know, furniture franchises yeah. and, you know, little consulting franchises and things like that. And, and that was fine. But that eventually led us to insurance, which again is the largest multi-level uh, industry in the world. And uh, we ended up actually in United Healthcare's ecosystem. And, and United Healthcare is the largest in the world with a $300 billion market cap. And so we got lucky because just a few months into business, we we stumbled on maybe one of the largest customers you could ever ever do business with. Can you explain the process? So let's talk specifically on the insurance business. What talk about from when you guys you have the insurance company, you have Toolbox OS, and to when you guys make the deal and combine your software with them. What is the exact process that takes place with that software that does help them grow 
they're able to and what's the time frame usually yeah no it's a really good question because every client uh uses us for different things yeah so um you know there's 30 different apps or modules inside of our os so you know some people are super heavy into the hr stack some people are super heavy into the marketing or sales stack uh, some people are super heavy into the operations or finance stack. So we try and cover these five major areas of a business of marketing, sales, HR, ops, and finance. So because we have five or 10 products in all of those categories, it's kind of diverse. I mean, you'd probably liken it more to like a web dev project yeah. where someone would come to you and say, I need a, I need a site, you know, and you say, well, great, let's architect what you want, right? What are the pages you want? What do you want it to do? Do you want to be, you know, want to, do you want to be able to like sell things on the side yeah. or, you know, do you want a lot of video? Do you want it to be more textual? Like, how do you want it to be? And I guess we sort of treat it like that because we don't have what's called a point solution. Yeah. Right. Zoom is a point solution, right? It does one thing. It does it well. That's it. That's it. Right. And no one's going to give you equity for Zoom. They'd rather just pay a hundred dollars and move on, right? Yeah. And use the product. Because of the breadth, you know, the 30 products or so across all five of those categories, we we ultimately have to kind of assess, you know, it's an assessment of where would technology serve you best today? Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, some of our customers, they're not actually leveraging our platform to necessarily increase their EBITDA. Sometimes they're leveraging our platform to go sell a software product to their customer, they're adding a software services line to their product line. Ah. And we're the back of it, right? Yeah. And so it, it really kind of comes down to like you zooming out and saying, well, what would really drive revenue? What would really drive EBITDA or net profit? And what would really drive your multiple up? And sometimes the answer is, we need to sell a monthly recurring revenue product to our customers. Or we need to turn this service we have into a product. Let's talk about the, so you have all these apps inside the software and based on what their goal is, they'll pick one. Let's, the one that interests me is the sales and marketing to get, convert more leads. What does that look like for what your software does to bring in more leads to make it easier, less cost per lead and, and closing more people? Yeah, that's that's a really good one because that's one of the reasons why, you know, we were able to do business with United Healthcare. Yeah. Um, in fact, we we sold them in Q4 of 2019, we sold them uh, about 3 million leads. Wow. Just to kind of give you a sense for that. So 3 million. Yeah. That's a lot of leads. Yeah, that's that's how many leads are in our database from that from that particular era, you know. Yeah. Um there's a lot there. Um and that wasn't just across like one one office or client or division. It's it's a huge organization and there was there was a lot going on at the time. So I would say that, you know, one thing that that most people should think about is that there's a lot of ways to scale leads, right? And these days, like LinkedIn's so hot and especially in the B2B space and all these things, we just think, we just put our marketing hats on and we go to work. I mean, that's honestly what we do for the most part. So if I have an organization that wants leads and I don't have it, I'll, stop, I'll sit down and think about what that system could look like. It's highly likely we won't engage with that person. Like we won't stand up the lead system because if we're going to do it, we're going to do it really, really yeah, well. Yeah. You know, we're, we might not be 3 million leads in a quarter, but yeah, you know, we're going to think about it a lot, right? So 
as an example, uh, what we did um, for the UHC kind of ecosystem is we ended up architecting um, a data warehouse, basically, where we could bring in all of the sites from the internet that produced health insurance leads. And so what we ended up doing was we bought all the leads, all the traffic from all of the sites that already produced leads, and we bought them wholesale and stuck them in this warehouse so that we could have a supply. And then we just had clients that met that supply, right? Demand that met that supply. Yeah. And so we didn't actually generate the leads. We partnered with the companies that had the leads and we outbid others for those leads and then ultimately had those leads at scale and we were able to service, well, the world's largest company in that particular vertical um, with a, basically an, an unlimited source. It's genius. <laughs> yeah. And in some instances, we'll generate the leads ourselves, right? Or we'll we'll stand up a software product that makes sense to do that. We're big on data. So yeah. we've been buying data since way before it was cool. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've done data projects for clients ever since way back at my at my marketing agency. So our, our marketing stack is very data oriented yeah. and we have a, a leads marketplace in a lot of different verticals. I think about 19 verticals. Yeah. We have like full scaled leads that we can just literally turn on in the organization from one minute to the next. So this proven system in the software, are some of the companies that come to you, I mean, it's almost like they're pitching you, hey, here's what we want to do because you're not taking on everybody, correct? Yeah, that's true because we ultimately are getting married right you're going into business so you're yeah. providing a software that's why i said tech for equity so basically you're providing tech in return for equity of their company and then you're growing their ibida by one to four hundred percent and which is a win for both parties uh are they what's the process like for them to get to actually work with you uh i would say it's, it's pretty difficult it's it's pretty easy to get a 10-minute conversation but i think yeah. you know we have to see that we're going to probably two to three X revenue EBITDA and the valuation multiple, because if I can three X all three of those numbers, then I have a 27 X conversation, you know, and I know my value is super high. So like everyone who's listening to this, you want to only do business with people that you know, you're going to be of immense value to, yeah. and they're going to provide way more value than you charge them for. So if I'm going to end up taking, let's say 25 or 35% equity in a company, I need to know, then I'm going to drive up their enterprise value 10, 20, maybe even 30 times. Yeah. So, I mean, I think anyone listening to this would go, well, if I have a $10 million business and partnering with somebody like that would make it a $200 million business, no brainer. of course I'd be willing to give up a quarter of the company, right? So that's the conversation that we want to be in. And the only way to verify that is to kind of look at what, you know, do that assessment, right? Look at what our platform could do in your space, in your business. Are some of these companies coming to you because they want to exit in the next five years? Absolutely. So they're looking to build a more a higher valuation in their company in EBITDA so they can be in a good position to sell. Yeah. I would say that's probably the best case for us only because there's a finite amount of time. We've got to do it quickly. We don't have 10 years to go invent a bunch of software. We need to get there fast, right? Mm -hmm. So I think our value proposition is perfect in some sort of M&A or, or exit conversation. It totally makes sense. I mean, I, I'm thinking all the different companies, how this could substantially grow them, and it makes it's, it's just a no-brainer 
to be able to implement that software. There's so many companies out there that don't have software implemented. They lack software and they lack a system. And there's so much money spent on things that don't need to be spent on in time. This is the solution to the to the problem. What, what how many companies do you have right now that are in your system with Toolbox OS? So in terms of portfolio companies, portfolio. right? Partners, we have about five businesses that we own and all in completely different verticals. Yes. And then we actually have but other businesses inside of those businesses because those uh, portfolio companies are considered platform companies. Yeah. And they'll go acquire another company, right? Or birth another company. So, you know, we have an insurance company that's acquiring other insurance companies, right? So just that one insurance company within the next 12 months will probably own 10 insurance companies in and of itself, right? And then we have an equity fund that owns equity in other companies. So, you know, it kind of, there, there's like a massive shark tank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're just yeah. going and getting these different companies and growing together. Yeah. I'm the tech for equity tank. Yeah. Where, where do you see the tech for equity tank? Where do you see this going in the next five years with Toolbox OS? You know, What's going to happen? I think this, this will actually turn into a bit of a space, I think. Uh, but the problem is, is that there's such high barrier to entry, you know? Um, I spent $7.4 million to build the first version of my software. And then I also spent several hundred thousand dollars and an inordinate amount of time just figuring out the legal and tax consequences to our model, um, which are tremendous. They're, they're very, very challenging. I would, I would say tongue in cheek that the IRS single-handedly tried to dismantle my business model. Mm -hmm. um, but we won. You know, we figured it out. But it was very difficult. So I think others that want to play in this space um, are going to kind of experience those same challenges that we did on some level because there is a taxation component to it. Mm -hmm. There is a business model component to it. And again, no one's going to give you equity for Zoom technology, no. right? Probably unlikely. So in order to build the breadth of technology, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to play in this space. We see what we're doing as the lowest risk of this type of private equity model that we've ever seen. The reason why is because one in 10 venture-backed startups succeed, right? So if one in 10 succeed and there was millions of dollars deployed into those other nine, the idea is that that one company has to return the fund. Yep. It has to return all the other money that was went in the garbage for the other nine, right? In our model, we're taking equity in companies but there's $0 invested typically. So the downside risk is just opportunity cost, yeah. right? So even if I only succeeded at one or two out of 10 businesses that I partnered with, yeah, I didn't just blow $9 million. So from an investor standpoint, you know, from a modeling standpoint, it's actually more intelligent, right? It has less downside risk and it still has the upside. It's a unique aim. I was just listening to the book, uh, Jason Calacanis, who wrote the book Angel. Have you read the book? No, I haven't. It's a great book, but it, the whole philosophy talks about how you you find all these deals and you invest. You have so many chips on the table, you put them all these different ones and you invest in, let's say, 100. And you're looking ideally to get one unicorn, but you're putting money in. And you know nine out of 10 of them are most likely going to fail flat on their face. So you're taking the system and making it where you there is really no risk. I mean, obviously you have the software all already built. You're making it a lot easier for you to get more wins. Yeah. With having to put any chips on the table. Yeah. And just to be clear about the modeling, like a lot of people do services for equity, 
right? Yeah. Almost all of my friends are willing to do services for equity. Yeah. I'll do your marketing for equity. I'll do your so website for equity. I'll do your software for equity. That's not what we do, right? We, to your point, we exchange um, a lifetime access to all of the code we've already written for equity. And that gives anyone a huge head start to build whatever will be impactful for them. What do you see? I mean, we're in an interesting time right now. I mean, I would say the pandemic made it where technology advanced even more. And now it's these systems are being needed. Where do you see in the next five or 10 years with technology and how business is going to be run? How are things going to be differently? I mean, and then looking at Toolbox OS, how this system plays into all fields, all areas of business. Yeah. I mean, I've been saying it for a long time. The 08 recession marked the the birth of, you know, the proliferation of the internet. And this recession, and I'll call it a recession. Some will some will argue that this isn't a recession. Uh, I, I think it should be considered a recession by all intents and purposes. We have suicides as high as they've ever been. We have you know, poverty as high as it's ever been. We have major problems because of this situation. I think that this particular recession marks the birth of AI. This marks the birth of the proliferation of artificial intelligence as we know it. We've been dabbling in AI uh, with Siri and Google Home and Alexa and, you know, some, some little things here or there, you know. If you drive a Tesla, then you know that the autopilot feature is kind of a cool AI. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. You know, those are mostly natural language based AIs. Uh, but here, uh, shortly, you're going to see some things that are going to blow your mind. We already have technology that's been birthed and is already operational, uh, where you can connect your brain to the internet. Mm -hmm. So that's something that, you know, has been birthed over the last 12 months. And I think we've got to realistically wrap our arms around AI is here. It's proliferating really quickly. Uh, there's lots of types of it, and it could be used to change any industry. Mm -hmm. Your industry could be completely changed over the next 24 months by AI, by additional technology. The tough part about AI is that it's not a thing. It's just a word. No one really knows what that means, you know? Is an algorithm AI? Maybe, you know? Yeah. Um, there's certain things that I think most experts would say, well, that's definitely AI, you know, like deep learning or machine learning. But uh, in most consumers' minds, you know, the pedestrian explanation of AI is just like something that a human can't do, you know, or is too difficult for a human to do. So I think we have to be aware that the next decade is going to change all of our businesses and change all of our industries. And that really presents what, what you were saying, which is how does Toolbox fit into that? Mm -hmm. The purpose of Toolbox, very simply, if you just picture this in your mind, right, you have the speed at which technology proliferates, the speed of current innovation of technology. Most experts will call this Moore's Law, right? Mm -hmm. The speed at which technology is moving. It's on this trajectory. The question is, what trajectory is your business innovating on, right? Is that a lower trajectory? Is that a flatter mm -hmm. trajectory? What's the gap between the speed of technology and the speed of your business when it comes to technology? And that gap is what you have to attack, right? The only reason why Toolbox is valuable is because we fill that gap immediately. If, if people don't get into that gap or technology, they're not going to have a business. I mean, Ray Kurzweil talks about, his, I don't know the term, 2029 are, what is it? Uh, 
exponential where technologies emerge and it, it becomes so crazy. It gets to the point where the human and the robot are the robots able to make the same decisions and the abilities as a human. Yep. And so it's it gets to the point where let's say we have robots or we have, I mean, our cars are already driving themselves. Yep. But the part that I, I would love to just kind of, I'm curious about for, to hear your perspective is we talk about plugging to our brain. So we have this thing called a phone, right? And it'll get to the point eventually where we can plug into our cortex where we can actually think and our thoughts can do what we want, whether it's, let's say calling this person or doing whatever it is. How do you, what's your perspective on that technology on being able to connect the internet to our brain and how our thoughts can literally do whatever we think it is. How do you see that taking place? Like, and how do you see that in the benefit of human advancement technology and business? Yeah. I, I frankly see it as the, the scariest part of technology advancement. What drives me probably most crazy is the concept that most main street businesses are still trying to figure out whether they should put software in their business or whether they should build software. And yet, you know, Elon Musk is over here connecting the space to the cloud, to the internet, to your brain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've been talking about this for years and I've also heard Elon talk about it, but the technology landscape is this topographical map of everything is super flat and then there's these big tall buildings, right? Mm -hmm. And when you've got these huge buildings and everything else is flat, this is analogous to those tall buildings are Google, Amazon, Elon, these types of companies. And then the flat topography is everybody else. It's the articulation of like, this is how fast technology actually moves and this is how fast you move, mm -hmm. right? And if there's that huge gap for much longer, yeah, you're going to see a lot of disintermediation. You're going to see a lot of businesses go out of business. You're going to see a lot of industries change. And that has major ramifications for the economy, I think for the positive mostly. But I'd like to see honestly just some more generic implementations of better technology and basic AI across Main Street, SMB, America, right? The, the brain people are gonna do what they do. I think it's dangerous. I think that we have to be careful with it. But it is quite I think, scary when yeah. you think about somebody can attack the brain from yeah. Your software. Part, yeah, partially too, because cybersecurity is a big deal, right? So, I mean, there's just so many challenges with this. I think you're going to see a lot of regulation come out. Um, I think legislation will jump in on this shortly. But, you know, let's leave that to the billionaires. You know, what can you do today? Well, you've got to attack this gap. You've got to get your business in sync with technology. Not necessarily with neuro AI, you know, but you've got to get it in sync with technology and at least make it so that you're not going to get your ass kicked by everyone else who's faster than you. You have to adapt now and start implementing the technology. Otherwise, you're not going to have any business. Yeah. And another way to say it is this isn't you saying, oh, well, we should do video conferencing. So let's get Zoom and oh, we should have a CRM. And so let's let's buy Salesforce and oh, we should do project management better. So let's have a project management app. And then that eventually ends up into 18 different things you have in your business that you have to log into. That doesn't necessarily remove the friction from your business, going back to the pie chart, right? Yeah. Just because you bought softwares doesn't mean that you're a tech-enabled business, right? Yeah. Your sales team may not even use that CRM, right? Your project managers may not even be any more productive because they have that product. You know, you've got to look at it from a friction standpoint 
and from what do you have that's proprietary? You know, just because you implemented or bought 17 things doesn't necessarily How's mean How is it anything. unique to your business and yeah. running all your systems? Yeah, and you could potentially duct tape all those together and make it unique, but I think that's less likely than actually trying to innovate something and saying, where is my industry heading, right? What's the next thing in my space? Do you have any competitors for Toolbox OS? Not on our business model. On the product side, we every single software company in the world probably competes on some level. Yeah. But because of our modeling, because we're we're a software company in that our core core service is a is a is a software. Yeah. But we're a private equity company because of our model. And that's one thing, maybe a learning point for your audience is that most people do not innovate on the modeling side. They think about what they sell and that's mm -hmm. all they think about. What you sell is not how you sell it or how you deliver it. So business models is a whole nother context that you can add to your business. You can do a really boring business that everyone else does, but have a different business model to it. And yeah. all of a sudden it's unique, right? And that's all I did was I took software, software that's out there that other people have. And I did a tech for equity business model underneath it, which made the software unbelievably unique because of the modeling. What's next for Toolbox OS? You know, it's a good question. Uh, we'll, we're probably going to go public um, within the next couple years. It's kind of got public written all over it. Uh, there's, there's no question that um, I'll probably move out of the CEO role at some mm -hmm. point. Our current target is to kind of go from right where we are right now to reach a billion dollar value. I think we can do it in the next 18 months. And so I'm extremely focused on kind of driving the company from where it is today to a billion dollar enterprise value. And at least as the CEO taking it to that point, and we'll see where we go from there. It's an exciting ride. I mean, we met here, what was it, a month ago or so, got introduced by our friend Chris Cumby. I'm excited to be working with you on the company, excited for the future of it. Man, it's it's just, it, it's the tech for equity model. It's, it is like a shark tank and you're finding all these deals. I mean, I've always talked about going and investing in all those companies. You're taking a system that you have that nobody's really created in that format and find a way to exponentially blow up other businesses in a good way. And, and then you get a piece of it. So it's genius. I'm excited to see the ride and maybe the public in two years. I'm curious, what do you see? So you don't want to be, if you look in a few years from now, you don't want to be the CEO anymore. Is there a reason why you want to step down from that position? Um, well, I just, I know what my uh, unique gifts are, right? Yeah. My core competencies are. So I'm extremely good on the innovation side, knowing what the market wants yeah. and needs. And I'm really good at the front end of the of the business, right? So if I can be in a role where I'm in charge of innovation, I'm in charge of making sure the product market fit is right, um, and I can I can do that stuff really well. Um, I'm not as good in more of a managerial bureaucratic compliance Same sort way. of side, right? <laughs> Same way, yeah. And so like I would say like not that I'm a fan of any of the people I'm about to mention necessarily, but if you look at what some of the others have done, I'll just use Microsoft as an example. Um, Gates got it to a point where he felt like Steve Ballmer should take take over, mm -hmm. right? And uh, they were a public company, and that was a great move because it allowed Gates to move to a chairman role 
It allowed him to play to his strengths and then ultimately kind of do whatever he wanted to do. And the company's proliferated unbelievably since Ballmer took over, right? So yeah. it was a good decision in hindsight, and I think that might be a similar path for me. Yeah. Well, gee, I just want to acknowledge you. I love what you're doing with Toolbox OS. I love your drive, your your genius. I love your futurist look at things. I mean, <laughs> I, I could talk with you for a couple hours on the future of AI in the next 10, 20 years, which is exciting, scary, mm -hmm. um, but it's happening. No matter where you look at it, it's happening. And if you want to stay ahead of it, you need to implement technology and systems into your process. So if somebody wanted to learn more about Toolbox OS, work with you, where could they find more? Yeah, I mean, they could always uh, look up Toolbox OS. They can also go to my my personal site, GaydenLevitt.com, um, G-A-Y-D-O-N-L-E-A-V-I-T-T.com. And, and uh, you know, jump on my YouTube page or whatever and just see what I talk about and uh, kind of see what we're up to. I mean, if you watch... Uh, 10 or 20 videos, you'll have a pretty good you'll sense be, of yeah, you what get it's some about. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah, you'll get you'll get some pointers whether you you know want to reach out or not. You know, you might not be able to sleep at night too. You'll be like, oh my god, <laughs> this is what's next. Yeah, and just for your audience, like if someone's pretty serious that uh, you know after they watch videos and things like that, that it's worth their time, they can always uh, just kind of go to my um, go to my calendar and book 10 minutes, which yeah. is just timewithg.com, and uh, you can just book a little bit of time and chat and if there's something then we'll we'll pursue it well thank you so much for coming on the show for all of you go book a time with him 10 minutes with him your mind will be blown and as always go out there create something great and become unforgettable because life is too short not to i'm Brendan c adams have a great day everyone